0: I really enjoyed preparing for this week's teaching. I'm really pumped about this message. I'm actually really happy that things are so working out that we get to park for two weeks on this parsa because it is so rich. Uh, I want to begin by talking not just about the actual content of this portion, but about the book of Deuteronomy in general and what it represents. Because it's a unique book amongst the books of the Torah. And uh, it, its undertones are New Covenant undertones also. So we'll, we'll look at that together. Uh, this book is called Deuteronomy in Greek. In Hebrew, it's called Devarim, because the first parasha in this book is uh, Parashat Devarim. Uh, these are the Devarim. These are the words that Moshe spoke. That's why it's called that. And Deuteronomy... In Greek means repetition of the law. Uh, you can hear the Ron Nomi at the end is in nomos, the law of the Torah, and Deutero is like a second copy or a repetition. Alright, so Deuteronomy means a repetition of the Torah. In Hebrew we call that the Mishnah Torah. Mishnah Torah. Maybe some of you have heard that phrase before. So the uh, the root of Mishnah as in Mishnah Torah, Deuteronomy, is the Hebrew word two, shnaim. Can everybody say shnaim? shnaim. So Mishnah Torah has something to do with the Torah and number two, a repetition of the Torah, a second uh, copy, etc. If I'm not mistaken, that's the, actually the term used when it says that the king of Israel, will be reading about him in a couple of Shabbats, he's to write out for himself a copy of the Torah. And I, I'm pretty sure it says Mishnah Torah there, but we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll corroborate that to you in a couple of weeks when we look at it. Where this discussion gets interesting is when we look at how these terms are used in the book of Hebrews. Because the book of Hebrews talks about the Torah. The book of Hebrews talks about the priesthood. And the book of Hebrews uses this term Deuteros. It uses the root for Deuteronomy. And uh, when we understand that, it actually unlocks the uh, understanding of the book of Hebrews to us When we understand this uh, Deuteronomy dynamic um, th- Okay, the Hebrew word shnaim, or two, in Mishnah Torah It means a repetition of the Torah, a doubling of the Torah And this is the same term that's used in Hebrews 7 Where it talks about Yeshua is the high priest of a priesthood But it's not the Levitical priesthood. And then Hebrews 7 says, therefore there has to be a change of law to uh, govern this priesthood that Yeshua is the head of. It talks about a change of priesthood and a change of law. Now this is challenging because, this interpretation of the term is challenging because we know that Yeshua didn't come to abolish the Torah, in fact He explicitly said, don't even think so, right? So if we were to just go and overhaul the Torah and change the thing, that would be effectively abolishing it, wouldn't it be? Um, the priesthood also. It says over and over in the Torah that the priesthood that is headed up by Aaron and his sons, is it has an eternal anointing on it. it over and over, it gives the details of this priesthood. It's job description and it says, these things are leolam; These things are forever. So he, he, he goes out of his way. The Almighty goes out of His way to specify this in the Torah over and over. So then we have the book of Hebrews coming and saying, and actually, you know, the law has changed and the priesthood has changed, etc. Well, I submit to you that this is a mistranslation. And that wasn't the thought that was in the mind of the author. I submit to you that when it's talking about a change of the law, it would better be understood as a deuteros of the law. It would be better understood as a repetition of the Torah, a doubling of it. It's not that let's let's say that this line here, this is the Levitical priesthood, okay? It's not that this one is abolished, but it's doubled. It, there's another, there's a Deuterost that's added. It's this overarching Melchizedekian priesthood that that existed at the very beginning and that will exist after the Levitical priesthood is gone. And this is the one that Yeshua is the head of. So this is this is something that the book of Deuteronomy helps us to understand. Uh, same with the same with thing with the Torah, uh, the new covenant. Is the new covenant is is uh, one of the elements of the new covenant that it is a renewal of the previous covenants of God, like Yohanan, John one says uh, the Torah was given through the hands of Moshe, and grace and truth came through Yeshua the Messiah. Not that they're in juxtaposition against each other. That is so true. Where where there's no law, you don't need grace. Grace doesn't have a context, then, or a, a point of reference or meaning. Hey, wow, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so uh, what we understand about the New Covenant, the Hebrew term there is Brit chadasha we've talked about this in past months That term chadasha for new also means renewed The moon when it appears every month is called new, but we know it's not a brand new moon out there It's not like the thing implodes on an atomic level and then a new one materializes, it's just, it's a renewal of the cycle So, I mean, yes, the New Covenant is a new covenant, it is not like the Covenant that the Almighty made with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. It's new in that regard, but it includes a renewal a renewal of the previous covenants of God, uh, an establishment of them and a fulfillment of them. And that's something that we learned from this uh, Deuteronomy concept. Uh, Daniel Lancaster has a phenomenal set of talks on the book of Hebrews. You can access them for free on uh, the website of his congregation, BethEmmanuel.org uh, He goes into detail with this Where he talks about like the Deuterose in the book of Hebrews And how the book of Deuteronomy helps explain it He does a much better job than I can And he takes several sessions because it's a lengthy topic But it makes so much sense when you understand it in that context So uh, Deuteronomy, it's the last book of the Torah its uh, You could say it's about a fifth of the Torah, right? About 20% and uh, it's, it has a different overtone than uh, the first four books. It's a review, is what it is. Uh, we see that at the very beginning, Moshe is taking the people of Israel, he's taking their minds on a review of the history that they've experienced in the last 40 years. He retells the stories and encapsulates it for them. And uh, then he, kind of, he finishes off the Torah also with some specific details in upcoming sections. And... What, what does this teach us? That the last fifth of the Torah is devoted to review. That the last twenty percent is primarily going back over the material already learned. Well, we're we're disciples of Yeshua. We're we're Talmidim. We're students. So maybe there's something that this this fact has to teach us as students. Uh, you know, even on a psychological level, whether we're studying material for final exams in university, or uh, whether we are studying. Holy writ. Uh, what this, something this teaches us is that we should always conclude our study time with the review of the material we learned. Uh, even on a, on a psychological level in terms of understanding how our brains function, you have two memories in your brain. You have a short-term memory, and that one just, that one takes in data that you need to remember only for a short period of time and uh, you don't need to take a lot of mental CPU to remember that long-term. If I could use a computer term, seeing as how we were having some computer problems earlier, that's going to go to my head. So you have your short-term memory, and you have your long-term memory. Now, when you study material, it automatically goes to your short-term memory, and if you don't transfer it to your long-term memory, you'll forget it by the next day, or in my case, an hour or two later, how many of you have had that happen? You'll you'll get up in the morning and you'll study the scriptures. This is this is my experience. I get up in the morning and I study the Torah and I just think, wow, I love the Torah. Like Yeshua is teaching me some really relevant things here, and I'm I'm excited about it. I I can't wait to share it with somebody. You know, the next person that calls calls me on the phone, I'm going to tell them about what I learned in the Torah this morning, right? And an hour goes by and it just totally slips my mind. And even if I tried, I couldn't remember. You know, that would be an example of your short-term memory. So the the challenge is, how do you transfer things to your long-term memory so that you can actually have them on recall when you want to bring them up into your conscious mind in the future? And uh, the book of Deuteronomy holds the secret to that. It's the secret of review. Uh, After you study material, after you meditate on something, stop and go back over what you studied and just review it in an encapsulated form. And that'll help a lot to lock things in your long-term memory. Uh, this is just something that I learned from a CD set that I listened to on the brain and how it functions. It, the CD set is by a man named Brian Tracy. It's called Accelerated Learning Techniques and he takes thousands of hours of research on the brain from many of the world's top brain researchers in the most famous universities and he, he just summarizes it into some really practical things like that, how we can apply it. Then we see that, uh, we see that Cream of the crop, modern brain research, right here in the book of Deuteronomy. Moshe was a genius. He knew what he was doing when he said, Okay guys, stop. Before we take the next step into the next leg of the journey, we are going to review the whole thing. We're going to go back. (laughs) Wow. So, here's another example of this in Genevieve's in my personal life. Uh, we We like to study a page of the Hebrew dictionary after supper. Because we read the prophecies... We know that the land of Israel is in our future, whether it be in our near future or a little farther down the road. Um, we we are making plans to make Aliyah in the Father's timing, and uh, some of us may be wanting to do that also. This may not be just a, a Genevieve and Izzy thing. And, uh, you know, they, they speak Hebrew in Israel, in addition to English. So, you know, one of our very small ways that we're investing in our future is we try and read a page of the Hebrew Dictionary. And uh, maybe that sounds exceptionally nerdy. Most couples do not read their dictionaries together after supper. That sounds a little less than romantic. But you know, it's really fun because uh, you just you get a whole page of words and interesting ways of saying it and a, a fresh perspective. We both feel like we're really breaking out of our mental boxes. So that's been fun. But something I realized is that all of this stuff is going into my short-term memory and none of it ever comes back. I don't remember any of the words that we ever have learned. And uh, and I mean, I really try. you know, I go over the word and I see it and I focus on it and I, I think about maybe little memory, what it called mnemonics, like little ways that you can peg it in your memory and it just doesn't work. But recently, uh, Genevieve and I discovered a technique that has been working. I'm actually able to remember some of these Hebrew words that we're learning. And it's the secret of review. I open up the dictionary. Instead of just jumping to the new page, as I love to do, we, I stop and I go back to the page that we learned yesterday and I just take a couple of minutes to review that page. It's kind of fun. I'll just say the English word, say the Hebrew word, say the English word, say the Hebrew word. And, uh, and then Genevieve will repeat it back. And It's kind of fun. I'll be like sitting at the table like, um, what would be the word? Not barking out words, but just chopping through them. And Genevieve will be repeating them while she's maybe cleaning up the table or doing some dishes. And we kind of like to work together in that regard. So anyway, that's that's the secret of Deuteronomy, uh, an example of that in our lives. I think this is always also why we're in this cycle thing. I don't know, like, for some of us, we've been, we've been studying the Torah for quite a few years. For some of us, this is a newer phenomenon. For some of you, this might even be your first year going through the Torah cycle. And uh, you're probably loving it. You're probably feeling like you're going so deep in the Word. It probably feels great to be syncing with the people of Israel around the world as we study these weekly portions. But as the years go by, you're probably going to be like, uh, we read this last year. Why are we reading this again? You know, I'm getting bored. I don't know, I don't think, I don't think we'll ever get bored because the Word is new every day. And He always has fresh revelation. But, uh, I don't know, maybe some people will wrestle with that at times. And, you know, if you ever kind of feel that way, just stop and remember the secret of Deuteronomy. That as human beings... We're very prone to forget stuff. You read the history of Israel and you see that fact like graphically exemplified, don't you? We forget things. We need, we need to review. And uh, maybe it's for that reason that we're on this cycle where we go through the entire Torah every year. And every year it's deeper. Every year it's fresh. So anyway, that's a, uh, those are some of the things that I see from the book of Deuteronomy that we could uh, apply to our lives. Um. I want to read to you something that I read this week. This is the message. <laughs> I confess, I read the message sometimes. <laughs> and I really enjoyed uh, the introduction to the book of Deuteronomy that uh, Peterson had in here. I thought I would read it to you. It's like about a little over half a page. And uh, maybe it'll, it'll give us uh, some understanding of the full book also. Uh, he says, uh, Deuteronomy is a sermon. Actually, a series of sermons. It is the longest sermon in the Bible, and maybe the longest sermon ever. Deuteronomy presents Moses standing on the plains of Moab with all Israel assembled before him, preaching. It's his last sermon. When he completes it, he will leave his pulpit on the plains, climb a mountain, and die. The setting is stirring, and emotion-packed. Moses had entered the biblical story of salvation as a little baby born in Egypt under a death threat. Now, 120 years later, eyesight sharp as ever, and walking with a spring in his step, he preaches this immense sermon and dies, still brimming with words and life. Wow, 120. How's that for encouraging? This sermon does what all sermons are intended to do. Take God's words, written and spoken in the past, take the human experience, ancestral and personal of the listening congregation and then reproduce the words and experience as a single event right now in this present moment. No word that God has spoken is a mere literary artifact to be studied. No human experience is dead history merely to be regretted or admired. The continuous and insistent mosaic repetitions of today and this day throughout these sermons keep attentions taught and responsive. Huh, I never thought of that before. Moses drops that term today, this day, quite a few times. Let's watch for that, hey? Maybe, uh, what what, what can we do when we hear, let's say when the readings are happening and Moses says today or this day, what can we do to help us key into that and remember it? Yeah, okay, let's say Hayom. That's a great idea. Hayom is the day, today. Maybe we can point to our watches too or something. If someone's reading and we notice, we'll be like... It'll be fun. We'll do something like that. Okay. So anyway, it keeps us taught and responsive. The complete range of the human experience is brought to life in salvation by the full revelation of God. Live this. Now. The plains of Moab are the last stop on the 40-year journey from Egyptian slavery to promised land freedom. The people of Israel have experienced a lot as a congregation. Deliverance. Wanderings. Rebellions. Wars. Providence. Worship. Guidance, the people of Israel have heard a lot from God, commandments, covenant conditions, sacrificial procedures, and now, poised at the River Jordan, ready to cross over and possess the new land, Moses, preaching his great Plains of Moab sermon, makes sure that they don't leave any of it behind, not so much as one detail of their experience or God's revelation. He puts their entire experience of salvation and providence into the present tense, In chapters 1 to 11, he puts the entire revelation of commandment and covenant into the present tense. Chapters 12 to 28. And then he wraps it all up in a charge, into song, and a blessing. To launch them into today's obedience and believing. In chapters 29 to 34. Let's go. Then it says, from... In effect, Moses wrote the constitution of a new nation. Today, a constitution is an agreement among we the people about how we want to govern ourselves. But Deuteronomy is an agreement between a king, God, and his people. In Moses' day, treaties between kings and their people were common. They typically followed the format Moses used. Here's what the king has done for you in chapters 1 to 11. Here's how you're agreeing to respond in chapters 12 to 28. And here's the blessing if you, can ex- if you expect to follow through. Chapters 29 to 34, isn't that interesting? The book of Deuteronomy, the covenant manuscript, it it, it follows very closely the way ancient covenants were were uh, created at that time between a, what are the words? A suzerain and a vassal state, I believe, are the terms. Yeah. Uh, who is this too? This is fascinating. I'm going to talk about this a little bit also later. The slaves who fled Egypt were sped on by miracles, but panicked at the courage and work that living as free people in a dangerous world requires. I want to say that again. The slaves who fled Egypt were sped on by miracles, but panicked at the courage and work that living as free people in a dangerous world requires. So God kept them in the wilderness until that spineless generation died out and a younger, gutsier one grew up. But Moses talked to this new generation as though they themselves had been physically present for all the fireworks. They were going to have to live what their parents couldn't. And as William Faulkner said much later, the past isn't history. It isn't even past. Isn't that true? The past isn't history. And when it comes to the Torah, it isn't even past. And actually, I have some comments from the book of Acts about that too. So, the question is, who is the Sephar Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy addressed to? Let's look at that together. Deuteronomy 1.1 it says these are the words which Moshe spoke to some of Israel yeah. oh, oh all of Israel these are the words which Moshe spoke to all of Israel okay so the question is who was and who is all of Israel does all of Israel include you hmm Explain. You tell me first why you think all of Israel includes you, and Hannah, will maybe you can explain why you think it may not. That would be interesting. I, I think uh, you could say the Hebrew is like, "zev the, these and these are true. Um, it is true that on uh historical and historically contextual understanding, it's talking about Israel who is standing right there, right? However, if you read the way the apostles handled the scriptures, and how the early Jewish tradition handled them, you also have this level called Midrashic understanding. And that's where you say, okay, so this is the literal meaning, and this is true, but I wonder if there isn't a deeper meaning. Maybe there's a meaning that applies to me. And on that level, it doesn't say these are the words that Moses spoke to the generation who was standing right there at Moab. He says these are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel. And uh, here, here's, here's a thought for you. Moses wasn't speaking these things from his own heart or in physical a physical time frame Moses when he spoke the Torah and when he wrote these things down he wrote it in the spirit didn't he and The Spirit of the Holy One is eternal. He transcends time. So there's something about the Torah There's something about the prophecy of Moshe that transcends time that is eternal It's like Moshe is always speaking in the now It's like the words of the living God are always alive. It's like they are Reverberating over the corridors of history. That's how I understand it, and that understanding really brings the word to life for me. Also, it takes it out of the past and it makes it present. It is, yeah, sure. So I, I, I submit to you that when it says all of Israel, that that means you too, because you are included in all of Israel, um, in the kingdom. Israel will be re- reinstated. Yeshua will be reigning over the house of Jacob. And he will be reigning over you. That means maybe you'll be part of that that Beit Yaakov, that house of Jacob. And I, I like that term because that was the name of the old synagogue here in Prince Albert, right? Something to be honored. Anyway, um, some of the things that Moses says in here, and uh, Peterson pointed this out. He's talking to this generation like they were there, coming out of Egypt. Like they saw the fireworks. But... They weren't there coming out of Egypt. They weren't even born yet. Much of that generation didn't exist during the historical exodus. Is Moses just getting a little old? Is he just kind of forgetting who he's talking to? Maybe not. Maybe, maybe there was something to this. Do you remember in the book of Exodus, it says, part of our Passover liturgy, in the Torah, as you say, this is what, when your children ask you, why are we doing this Pesach thing? What is it all about? Your response is to be, this is what Yahweh did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it's 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 a singular, and it's first person, and it's present tense. This is what he did for me. So, uh, could it be that you did come out of Egypt also? Um, Moshe's words, they seemed anachronistic to the people of Israel. And I think that that idea might seem anachronistic to us also, but it was kind of anachronistic if we think about things from a physical viewpoint. So here's a concept, and Colin alluded to this. In Mashiach, our souls are bundled up with the souls of all of Israel. In Mashiach, we become part of that seed of Abraham. Irregardless of our ethnic lineage or our physical background. And if the seed of Mashiach is all of Israel, and I believe that it is, then Moses spoke the book of Deuteronomy to you. Wow. How could I give an example of that? Colin, you want to come here for just a second? Yeah, I'll just give you a little example. Okay, so Colin is like, Colin is getting up early because he has to get to work pretty early to study the Torah for a couple of minutes. And he could study in one of two ways. He could, uh, here, turn around. Okay, so let's say that this is the future, okay, this is the present, and this is the past, okay? He could study it as if the Torah, see, here's the Torah, as if the Torah is something behind him, something about past events, something about people other than him, okay? That's one way that he could study. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you study that way, it's harder to get something out of it. Maybe it can even get a little boring. It's easier to disconnect. Now, there's another way that Colin could study. Colin could study the Torah as if this whole thing is addressing him directly. As if Moshe himself, the prophet of Israel, speaking the words of Mashiach, are speaking to him personally. As if Colin is sitting at the feet of the great sages. As if he's learning from the prophets of Israel. As uh, in the chamber where the Mashiach himself studies the Torah and teaches the Torah. Colin could look at it that way, couldn't he? With his eyes on Yeshua, his rabbi. And he could he could read the book of Deuteronomy as though Moses talking to him. And maybe at first there would be a mental disconnect. He'd be like, wait a minute, I wasn't there in that generation. This doesn't apply to me. But the truth is, Moses spoke the book of Deuteronomy to all of Israel. So Moses spoke the whole book of Deuteronomy to you. Mm -hmm. So you could read it like this. You weren't willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of Yahweh your God, and grumbled in your tents and said, because Yahweh hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the land of the Amorites, to destroy us. You could say, no, I would never doubt the love of God for me. I would never grumble. That's not talking to me. But we're all the same. We're all descended from Adam. We all have that fallen nature, don't we? So we can read that as if it's talking directly to us. That can be very humbling. I think it's intended to be very humbling. That Maybe that's where the good news of Mashiach comes in, that he transforms us, that by his grace he, he makes us new people. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, you could read so much of this. Um, then I said to you, let's say this is Moshe talking to you, then I said to you, Colin, don't be shocked, nor fear them. Yahweh, your God who goes before you, will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness, where you saw how Yahweh your God carried you just as a man carries his son in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. Like, if you begin thinking about Moshe in that way, if you begin thinking about the authors of the scriptures and the Mashiach himself behind it all, like talking in your face directly, right? The word is going to come to life for you. And uh, I-, I encourage you, try and get in that mindset when you study. It, it takes some mental exertion. It takes some imagination at first because we're not... we're not. Uh, Accustomed to that, but I believe that when we do that, we're going to experience like a new connection with the Scriptures. It's going to become more personal. Thanks, Colin. Actually, I had someone—I think it was a month ago—Hannah ask me about like how, how did I study the Scriptures? Because like I love to study the word in Hebrew. I love to—I love to get out my Hebrew etymological dictionaries. I—I I like to go deep and and mine for those nuggets, right? And I use different translations and things, too. So I think the person was, was suspecting that I would say, well, you know, maybe if you learn Hebrew or maybe if you use this dictionary or whatever. But I said, study in the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, the Holy Spirit is uh, what the word was written in, and the Holy Spirit is the one who can interpret it and apply it and make it, make it come to life. I don't think it's so much about whether you study in this language or that. Although, you know, the Hebrew does offer some fantastic stuff. It's about sitting at the feet of Yeshua and learning from Him. You know, so, I totally agree with you. And that is something that each of us has, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Okay, so, let's, uh, let's just kind of meander through this parish now. Those are my comments on the book of Deuteronomy. I, I actually do want to tell you one more thing about it. This is not on my notes, so I forgot it. But you remember, the Master was locked in fierce combat with the Tempter in the desert for 40 days. He wasn't eating anything that was a challenging time and uh, how did he respond when the temptation came when the spiritual assault began that's correct both are true but he started by quoting the Torah three times he quoted the Torah to combat the lies of the enemy and then you're right at the end he said get behind me Satan or he he said be gone so he and he took that direct authority so I wonder if maybe maybe the master's approach is a good one for us too we our attempt today eh? I'm telling you, when I feel tempted in whatever regards, when I have that rush of emotion come through me that has lies behind it, the last thing I want to do is quote the Torah. I'm telling you, the last thing I want to do is think about the scriptures. Because it'll prove me wrong. Right? It's like, I want to do this, but if I quote the scriptures, it's going to prove me that what I want to do is wrong. And I sometimes I have a hard time with that. You know, I'm feeling this way, maybe I'm pouting or sulking or feeling grumpy because someone did something I didn't like. And uh, maybe sometimes that's like enhanced by the enemy too. I think sometimes the enemy can just go and start like getting you all churned up emotionally inside, you know. I've experienced that. And when I'm feeling like that, the last thing I want is to quote truth that will make me stop feeling like that. Because I like wallowing in my self-pity sometimes, you know. I like to I like to feel sorry for myself and just think about how right I am and how wrong that person is. So anyway, Yeshua quoted the Torah and that's a great example for us too. Did you ever notice which book of the Torah he quoted in all three instances? Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy. So, you know, there's just something, there must have been something in the heart of Mashiach where he really appreciated the book of Deuteronomy, where maybe it held extra special meaning for him. I don't know. It's just notable that he quoted from it three times. So maybe we would do well to go deep in this book also. Um, Okay, chapter 1, verse 2 we learn that the distance on foot from Mount Sinai to Kadesh Barnea, which was on the threshold of the eastern bank of Israel, the eastern bank of the Jordan, was only 11 days. It only took 11 days to walk from Mount Horav to Kadesh Barnea. But how long did it take the people of Israel to make that journey? 40 years Actually, it took technically it took them about 38 because they had a year where they were at Mount Sinai building the Mishkan, etc But yeah, it took them about 40 years and uh, I think something that I get out of that is that These figures 11 days journey, but it takes them 40 years It, it tells us that this dimension this physical dimension of geographical distance is relative to the dimension of faith Faith is a higher dimension of reality. Faith affects our physical existence in very tangible ways. So, if you have the faith factor, you can make it in 11 days. If you don't have the faith factor, you'll be lucky to make it in 40 years. And uh man, that was just jumping out at me when we were driving here this morning. Without faith, it's impossible to please Elohim. Like it all starts with believing him, with accepting himself as he, him as he reveals us to him. And acting on the revelation. Wow. So that's the faith dimension. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 5. This is a very short verse, but it's deep. We're going to get into the Hebrew. It says, Across the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moshe undertook to expound this law, saying... That's the preface to the book of Deuteronomy. And the key, key term here is, Moshe undertook to expound this Torah... And the Hebrew words there indicate a lot more than maybe what the English does. The uh, Hebrew there for undertook is Ya'al. Can we all say Ya'al? And I'm going to share with you a couple insights that I got from this book here. It's uh, based on the research of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who is very well known. In, uh, in Judaism, it's an etymological dictionary of Biblical Hebrew. So when we look up this term, Ya'al, we discover that in other places where it's used, it gives a fuller sense that it means to start a process, or initiate a process. So when it says that Moshe undertook, it's saying that he started a process, that he initiated a process, a like catalyzation. Uh, then it says that he he, uh, he expounded, expound there... Is the word ba'ar? Can we all say ba'ar? ba-ar. And uh, when I asked Genevieve what that word meant, she said, oh, that means a well, doesn't it? And yes, it does. It means to dig a deep well. Ba'ar. ba-ar. Yeah. Bait, olive, resh. It also means to write clearly. You remember it says, write the vision clearly on tablets? I think that's what, how it says. The word there is ba'ar. So, uh, this word baar means to write something clearly, so it's easy to understand. So the letters aren't fuzzy, or uh, like not legible. And it also means to dig a deep well. So let's just let's just flesh this out, and we'll understand what Moshe was doing in the book of Devarim, and also what Yeshua has come to do in our lives. It's what, what it's saying is Moshe began. Moshe initiated a process. Of clarifying the Torah. Moshe began to set the people on a trajectory. That would take them into the depths of the Torah. That is the intent of the book of Devarim. And uh, we know that Yeshua is the prophet like Moshe. So let's look at what that tells us about Yeshua. And uh, the role that he plays in our lives. Yeshua the Ancient of Days. This is what he does for us in the New Covenant. He initiates a process. In which the Torah is clarified to us. Yeshua sets us on a trajectory that will take us into the depths of the Torah and this is the theme of Deuteronomy this is the theme of the Deuteros the second covenant the new covenant that we have been brought into through the shed blood of Mashiach so I I really love that little phrase it's just so packed with meaning Uh, moving on in 1 verse 10 Moses says Yahweh your God has multiplied you and look you are This day. Hey, there's that term. This day. Hayom. You are this day. I never noticed that. Like the stars of heaven in number. May Yahweh, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are and bless you just as He has promised you. Now, the interesting thing about this, this statement of Moses is the Hebrew there can be read in one of two ways where it says, may Yahweh do this for you, in Hebrew it literally says, he will do this for you. Um, anywhere where you see it saying, may he, in the Hebrew, it can also be read as he will. So I'll give you an example. When we read, yevarechacha Yahweh veYishmarecha," that literally says, he will bless you and he will safeguard you. However, it can also be read as, may he bless you and may he safeguard you. So every place where you see one of those, may he this or that, you can also take that in faith as a promise for yourself. And uh, that applies to th- these words of Moshe also. Um, so with that in view, let's go back and look at this. He says, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, will increase you a thousandfold more than you are, and bless you just as he's promised you. So if we were to take that literally, what type of figures would be the results of that? 600,000 men times 1,000. 600 million. Yeah. Hmm? Well, I, I got to my calculator and it told me six, 600 million. 600,000 times... Let's think through this just to make sure my calculator was wrong. 600,000 times 100 is what? Now, oh, this is painful to think about on Shabbat, isn't it? Huh? Okay, 600 million. Great. So, is saying there, he's giving this, this figure of 600 million. What could this mean? Here, here's what I get out of it. I, I, I think that what we can learn from this is that the ideal projected population for the state of Israel is not just a tiny 6 million people like it is right now. The ideal projected population for the state of Israel, according to Moshe's words, is 600 million. In that regard... Abortion is one of the greatest enemies to the state of Israel And the blessing that Elohim wants to give them And so is birth control Because abortion and birth control serve the same effect It stops that number that he wants to give to the state of Israel Statistically also If the Jewish people weren't constantly Like exporting their numbers Through intermarriage and assimilation Statistically there would be more Jewish people in the world today than the entire population of the United States of America you're talking like 350 million plus 400 million plus that's just if the Jewish people stayed together stayed true to the Torah didn't assimilate into the Gentile world and assimilate and things like that you know 350 or 400 million that's getting pretty close to the figure that Moses gave wasn't it and if you look at it from the New Covenant perspective Israel does mean the physical Jewish people, but it also means you and you and you and you and you, doesn't it? Maybe more of us than what we would suspect have a little Jew inside of us, hey? <laughs> but, so anyway, that's, that I believe is the Torah vision for the nation of Israel. Not a tiny state of six million people, a massive country of 600 million people. And that is entirely feasible when you look at uh, geopolitical figures. Uh, what? China has over a billion people, correct? India, do they have over a billion people yet? I believe they do. So, you know, 600 million isn't that many when you look at it in that way. We think, oh, you know, the little state of Israel, but no, that is not the way it's supposed to be. You know, we we see on several levels that Moshe's words, they weren't just a whimsical wish or an abstract figure. Uh, Moshe's words are a sneak peek at the concrete figures that are going to show up on Israel's national census during the Messianic era. I believe that, 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 that was a vision of the time when Israel would be blessed by God during the Messianic era. So, you know, during the thousand year reign of Mashiach, expect to see massive numbers of people in the land of Israel. And uh, tying into that, I mean, man, you look at the current borders of Israel, pretty tiny, hey? I mean, we'd all be living in high rises in, in those conditions. But we see in Deuteronomy 1.7, the other half of the equation. It gives the borders of Israel, and it concludes by saying, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Uh, if you look at the land area, all from current Israel to the river Euphrates, that is very offensive to the Islamic world, to imagine Israel being that sizable. But uh, those are the figures given. So what I think is that, that those figures given are a sneak peek This time at the geopolitical boundaries that will exist in the Messianic era. In 121 and in 129, Moshe talks about emotions and he addresses the emotional state of the nation. And to, he essentially says, I'll paraphrase, don't succumb to fear, Israel. Resist the urge to panic. Don't let yourself go into shock. Maybe in the vernacular, he would be saying, don't freak out, guys. Don't lose it. We're facing giants. We're about to go into the land. This is a life and death situation. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. And uh, why would Moshe say that? I think because our natural human response to the unknown in general is fear. And that was certainly true of Israel. Our survival instincts tell us to avoid danger at all costs. But Yeshua is calling us to grab that cross and carry it on our shoulders. Uh, One side of that means living for him every day, of course. But the other side of taking up the cross means being prepared for a premature death for preaching the gospel. What could be a violent death. And we see Yeshua and his emissaries live that out uh, very graphically. Um, So our mission is into the unknown at times. It may be in the face of looming danger, but this is the essence of Moses saying, the great warrior, the dread champion, Yahweh of hosts, is going ahead of you. So don't be afraid and go for it. And, wow, doesn't that apply to us also in discipleship? I love that. Okay, in Deuteronomy 121, Moses says, See? Yahweh, your God, has placed the land before you. Go up and take possession. It's like, go up and take your inheritance. And uh, we were talking about the inheritance uh, for the last couple of Shabbats. And I see something critical here. Moshe doesn't say, go over and take possession, does he? He says, go up and take possession. And we've been talking about the concept of Aliyah for the last several weeks. And what does it mean? It means to go up, doesn't it? So if we want to come into what Yeshua is calling each one of us to, there's this connotation, not just of walking across and going into it, but there's this connotation of going up. Climbing. I don't know. Have, have any of you ever climbed like a mountain or a serious hill? Like that? Yeah, that, that's a picture of taking possession of what he's called us to. I, I spent a winter in California in the high desert outside of LA. And one day I decided to climb a mountain that was snow peaked and i had to i had to walk across an extensive plain to get there and by the time i got to the top of the mountain i was making tracks the whole day and i decided to do this survival thing i decided to do things the tough way so i didn't take any water i thought i'll just eat snow when i get to the snow line right and what did i take i took a little piece of turkey and i took a a worther's candy just to eat when i celebrated to go to the top i thought i'm going to do like a challenging thing you know so I made it to the top, it was like freezing at the top, and the wind was blasting, and the sun was setting. And I was like, oh shoot, this is the, probably the stupidest thing I've ever done. And I, I discovered, you know, if you're dehydrated, eating snow just doesn't work. So anyway, I did make it down, but I had to go down in the dark, in the snow, down some really steep areas. So like I was, I kind of, that was one of those times when I was tempted to panic. I was probably closer to panic then than ever. So I found this one area that was pretty steep, but there were a couple feet of snow, and there were big pine trees interspersed down, like, this sheer face and rocks, and I just started running down it. Like, if you've ever run down a hill, you know how fast you could go. And the snow would kind of, like, stop me and catch me, and sometimes I would just roll, and I did make it down. But anyway, so yeah, going down can be the hard part. (laughs) Anyway, sorry, that was a totally disconnected story, but I just had to tell you guys that. Good memories. Um, okay. So anyway, a critical element in the accomplishment of our mission is going up. It's making Aliyah. And uh, what, what does this mean on a practical level? What I think it is referring to is Torah study. Because Torah study is a challenge sometimes. Studying the Word is hard. It's like climbing a mountain. You actually have to exert yourself mentally, don't you? I mean, oh, when I get up in the morning, I feel groggy, I feel so spiritually disconnected, and it takes everything in me to like climb climb the mountain just to get out of bed, right? And then to climb that mountain of Torah study. But it is rewarding, and uh, when you reach the top, you meet the Master, and He imparts His vision to you, because that's where you get at the top of the mountain. So, may that be encouragement to each of us to continue making Aliyah every day. In Torah study. Because when we do that, we are going to come into what he has for us. That is so true. Hey, that's just what Moses was talking about, about the emotion too, hey? Can't go by your emotion sometimes. Um, An author that I enjoy reading, Brian Tracy, he says that even though some of us will say that we're rational beings, that our decisions are all based on reason, we are 100% emotional creatures. Every decision we make is based on our emotions. Uh, At least in an unregenerate state. You know, we do what we want, we do what we do because we want to, because it'll make us feel good, because we think it'll make us happy, whatever. And uh, maybe Moses' words are just addressing that, hey? We can't always go with our emotions. <laughs> oh yeah, but then the other half of it is, we make our decisions emotionally, but then we rationalize them, don't we? We always come up for reasonable justifications after the fact. And it's, it's quite fascinating how, how even for myself, I can rationalize anything I do. I can always come up for, with a good reason. Now you could probably even come up with biblical justification for sin if you tried hard enough, couldn't you? Hmm. Ask the homosexual Christian movement. They have biblical justification for things that in other areas are strictly prohibited. One thirty-two. This verse really smashed me when I read it. It's humbling. Uh, it's like Moshe's conclusive analysis. And he says... Sorry, maybe I have the wrong reference here. Yeah, 130, 132. He says, "For all this, you didn't trust Yahweh your God." That was his conclusion. And in Hebrew, it's like he said, "For all this, you are not believers in Yahweh your God." And that's that's wow, what an accurate like uh, analysis of our state. Outside of like the power of Messiah to change us. Hey, that really. What really struck me about that too is uh. That faith, we learn from this that faith isn't produced by external stimuli. These people saw the miracles. They saw supernatural things. They heard the voice of God audibly, and yet they didn't believe. So that tells that teaches us that faith isn't based on personal experience, is it? Uh, Quite often someone will say, Well, you know, when I see a miracle, Then I will do what he says. You know, I want to see something supernatural and then I'll believe him. Then I'll really go for it. And Yeshua's answer to that approach is, you are a twisted generation. You are a wicked and adulterous people. You remember the Pharisees, they said, well, Master, show us a sign. You know, we want to see, we want to see you do a sign. We want something, something physical that we can observe before we take you seriously. And he said, like, that's wrong. No. So we, we see that in this too. Um, what we do see faith based on though, is the spirit that we choose to be influenced by. Faith is directly related to the spirit that we choose to be influenced by. And uh, this is fascinating. Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians, he says that he and his team had the spirit of faith. So we learn that faith is produced on a spiritual level. You don't just have faith, you have like the spirit of faith, a believing spirit. And what spirit is that? It's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So what, what that teaches me is, if I'm having days where I am like really wrestling with trusting the Almighty, when I have a hard time believing what He said, then the solution is to go to the Father and ask Him for the Holy Spirit, because He wants to give the Holy Spirit, and that is the Spirit of faith. Uh, we also read in First Corinthians twelve, Paul says that one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is faith. So if you know if you know someone who is really struggling with Worry or they're overwhelmed with stress Or they're just experiencing any one of the natural consequences of not having a big faith The best thing you can pray for that person is for the gift of faith Because that's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit And Yeshua delights, I believe, in, in giving that gift um, I'll, uh, I'll finish with this, with this little theme <laughs> And then next week we'll come back to Acts and Deuteronomy um, we, we see these two, these two themes and they almost look like they're in contradiction to each other. The one is in Deuteronomy 1.30. It, it talks about Yahweh carrying the people of Israel like a, like a father carries a son. I mean, those are just those are such comforting words. You know, when you think about that, it gives you such a sense of security. Those, those strong arms that are undergirding us on a spiritual level, an emotional level, uh, even on a physical sustenance level. The other half of the equation, though, is in 1 verse 6, where he says, you've sat here long enough, now get up and get going. You know, He brings them to the edge and he says, okay, you're going to encounter some really dangerous stuff here, so don't be afraid, don't freak out. Go into it being strong and brave. That's the other half of the equation. And uh, that whole theme of him carrying his son, um, that, yeah, that reminds me of the Footprints poem. How many of you have read that? It's a classic, right? It's in so many people's homes. But I, uh, several years ago, I encountered the other version of that poem that addresses the other side of the equation. There are times that he carries us. There are times when we can just relax in his presence, where he can minister to us and comfort us. There are also times when he says, Okay, this is your mission. You've received the vision from me. Now go for it. And uh, I want to I read you a poem about that. One night I had a wondrous dream. One set of footprints there was seen, the footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not along the shore. Then some strange prints appeared, and I asked the Lord, What have we here? Those prints are large and round and neat, but Lord, they are too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you along, I challenged you to walk in faith. But you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed. You would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired and fed up. And there I dropped you on your butt. Because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb. When one must rise and take a stand. Or leave their butt prints in the sand. So... The title of this poem is Butt Prints in the Sand. Hmm? I didn't write that. Actually, I'll tell you the story of when I first encountered this poem. And this was profound for me. This was like one of those things between Abba and me where he really talked to me through this poem. Um, Wow. Almost three years ago, I felt a clear commission from Yeshua... To begin teaching Hebrew classes In North Battleford and here in Prince Albert Like, it was a vision that He emblazoned in my soul And I was I was excited about it There were were some details, it was very specific Some of it, right, and there were scriptures Connected and stuff, and I was like, yes And I shared it with Genevieve And uh, he gave me some very visible confirmations Of like, this was what he was calling me to And guess what I did I went and I got a job installing high-speed internet, and I pursued my plans to start a biodiesel company, and I didn't do anything. That's what I did. You went to a job, the ship, swallowed a whale. Exactly, and I did feel like I was stuck in the whale. With okay, installing high-speed internet in the country in the middle of winter when it's minus twenty-five or thirty, and I'm climbing steep, slippery roofs at like the the, the man that I was working with. He was a hard worker. We would go out at like 7 o'clock in the morning, we would drive an hour or two to different areas, and we would work for like 16 or 17 hours straight. We would just... Because, I mean, if you're going to drive an hour, an hour and a half, you might as well get the most of your day, right? So we would be like... We would be out at 10.30 at night in the North Battleford area, and he'd be like, okay, these are the list of customers we still have to install for. he called them up at 10.30, and he'd be like, yeah, so I'm in the area, and we're wondering if we could stop by and install your internet. And they would be like, uh at ten thirty? And he's like, Yes, it's the only time I can do it. And they'd be like, Okay. So we would show up and I'd be up on this roof at like eleven, eleven thirty, like with a flashlight tied to my head so I can see what I'm doing in minus twenty-five, holding a metal pole on a roof and trying to like get it to connect to the tower while he's down in the nice warm house doing all the work on the computer and and communicating via walkie-talkie. So yes, I was in the belly of the whale at that time. And I think I was beginning to really reconsider what I was doing and feeling the negative effects of it. And being like, what am I doing? So anyway, I had this big crisis. Uh, Genevieve, you and I were only married for like six or seven or eight months, eh? Oh, Genevieve so came through for me. I was freaking out. I was so unhappy. I did not enjoy like 18-hour work days. It does something to you emotionally, right? And, And anyway, but she helped me just think through it and be like, okay, let's go back to our altars. Where, what was the last place where we know Yahweh spoke to us? What was the last place where He gave us a vision and we built an altar there to remember it? And I was like, ding dong. The last thing He told me to do was start teaching Hebrew classes in North Battleford in Prince Albert. So at that point, I did some repenting and restructuring of my life, and that's when we started showing up around here. So anyway, the funny thing about that, and then you comment, is um, the first time I went to North Battleford... I started going around to some churches and talking to pastors and explaining what I'm passionate about and what I can offer the body of Messiah. And uh, I had some posters I wanted to put up. So I, I went to one of the big churches in North Battleford. I walked into the office. I talked to the secretary for a minute. And then I saw on the wall this poem. It's called Butt Prints in the Sand. And I read it, and I was like so convicted. Because I was like, this is so me. Like, okay, here. He says... For miles I carried you along, I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you wouldn't grow, the walk of faith you wouldn't know, so I got tired and I got fed up, and then I dropped you on your butt installing high-speed internet. I was like, oh, that is so me. So, you know, I had my, my Hebrew teaching binder that I would teach from, and I actually, I think the secretary, I was like, where did you get that poem? Could you like print me off a copy? So she printed me off a copy and I put it like in the front sheet of my binder, my Hebrew teaching binder for a year just as a reminder to like to like stay on the ball to be faithful to the mission when Yeshua gives me a vision to take it seriously and execute it immediately. And uh, that's my personal story about um, my butt prints in the metaphorical sand. Uh, Craig? Um, changed my mind from like doing the internet or what? Oh, like. Oh, okay. Well, I remember he gave, he gave me the original vision. Um, it was during the high holy days. Because I remember the day before Yom Kippur was a Shabbat, and Genevieve and I were driving down to Saskatoon, and I was sharing with her what I was feeling from Yeshua. And uh, so that was like September, something like that. And then it wasn't until February of the next year. So September through to February about, that I started to come around and like, come to my senses, I guess. (laughs) It's a pretty good turnaround time. For, (laughs) yeah, better than 40 years. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. Like, I, I feel a real call from him just hearing that to go back to areas where maybe I've lost my first love for him too. You know, I can think of times when maybe I, I prayed more about everything or I, I felt more connected with him. I mean, we do go through seasons, and I, I know sometimes different seasons are good, but yeah, I, I feel a real tugging in my heart when you say that too. Thank you. Can we pray for a second? I'd like to do that. Uh, Father, I just, I just I, I feel your invitation, just hearing what Lois is sharing, to let you take us back to areas where maybe we've lost our first love for you, or we just, it just isn't the same as it was at the beginning. And uh, Yeshua, we just invite you to take us back in the areas that you want to, to our first love with you. And I pray that you would resensitize our hearts to your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would reopen our ears to your voice. And I pray that you would give us a deeper level of humility in our relationship with you, Father. I, I really desire a deeper level of relationship with you in humility, Father. And uh, we just want to, I don't know I feel like you're almost offering today to do that in our lives. And I just want to say yes to you, Yeshua, um, give you my invitation, Amen. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would in turn support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one time donation or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free that way we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us and you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver if you're like most people finances are tight we understand that finances are tight for us too That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownamessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.